The beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, God's son, happened just as it was written about in the prophecy of Isaiah. Look, I am sending my messenger before you. He will pray, he will prepare your way, a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. <clears throat> John the Baptist was in the wilderness calling for people to be baptized to show that they were changing their hearts and lives and wanted God to forgive their sins. Everyone in Judea and all the people of Jerusalem went out to the Jordan River and were being baptized by John as they confessed their sins. John wore clothes made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. He announced, one stronger than I am is coming after me. I'm not even worthy to bend over and loosen the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Thanks, Steph. <clears throat> so it's been said that the kingdom of God moves at three miles per hour. Have you ever heard this? Kingdom of God moves at three miles per hour. You might look at me with a little bit of skepticism at the like specificity of that number. How could they, the experts, know how fast the kingdom moves? Didn't he, the preacher, just say last week that the kingdom of God moves and fits and starts eternity breaking in on our now? Not some steady climb. Yes, friends, you'd be right to be skeptical. This number is not the result of some deep archaeological or sociological study. It is a theological statement. The kingdom of God moves at the exact or approximate pace of a walking human being. This is true because the kingdom of God was inaugurated in the birth of Jesus, the God human who had a body with legs. No plane, no train, no automobile, no 5G internet. Just this simple fact puts him in common with most of humanity, no matter our time or location or socioeconomic status that we've been born into. The kingdom of God comes to us in this Advent season at the very pace of walking. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. A savior with legs, just that very fact is interesting if you start to get into it and kind of pick at that, uh, that snag. That Jesus, born of God and born of Mary, didn't come onto our scene or into a body like ours in any special or spectacular way. Like, while Jesus' first advent to us is extraordinary, the kingdom of God isn't so extraordinary that Jesus wasn't first an immobile infant in Mary's arms, swaddled in an animal's feeding trough, bundled on the back of a donkey as Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt as refugees and of a violent political regime. It wasn't so strange or different from how any of us, any of the kids in our homes or in our communities learn first to army crawl, 
all arms and then legs and then that drunken wobble of first steps after toddling from one piece of furniture to another. It's an adorable thing to imagine the baby Jesus becoming a biped. The kingdom of God started out even slower than three miles per hour. I also think of babies for whom these things don't come naturally. Like when you have four kids, like we do, you get let in on the secret that no parenting book is all right all the time and that no two kids are the same. So some like Noah who read, who just read and she just had her ninth birthday. She started walking before she even turned one. And I can with confidence tell you that is very on brand for our oldest child but others are slower to the draw. These quote unquote natural steps don't come as fast or easy. Others still might be forced with some sort of palsy or a club foot or an accident or a disability that impedes this sort of movement. It causes me kind of in that godly play mode to wonder, like with so little reporting on Jesus, the baby and the young child, we can, we have some space to wonder and to identify with how Jesus the baby becomes Jesus the young man. It'd be an anachronism to imagine Jesus going to a, a pediatrician for yet for well visits, but I wonder how Jesus grew, where he charted on the height and weight and head size. <clears throat> All of these are, of course, relatively new consequences of God becoming human in a real way. All of this, again, sets the pace of the kingdom at three miles per hour, close to the ground. So Mark's gospel begins with a subtle but stark proclamation. The beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, God's son, and it happened just as it was written in the prophecy of Isaiah. This is bold. This little sentence does a lot of work. In the beginning, the archon, it harkens back to the beginning, to creation, to Jesus. So Jesus' advent means that creation is happening again. New creation has arrived in a no less real or groundbreaking way than the first creation. But nevertheless, this takes place right in the midst of the old, new creation coming in to the old creation, right in the body of this baby of Mary. That's how the new creation breaks in. It's the beginning of the good news and don't sleep on this as a description of the content that this is not like I have good news and I have bad news. Which one do you want to hear first? It's not that sort of good news. This is good news like a headline of the New York Times or some other major world newspaper. This is like the news that the old regime has been toppled and a new one is coming in. As you might imagine, this is not necessarily good news to the old ruler, which is beginning to read the writing on the wall, that any new leader means the old powers and principalities are mere lame ducks. Their time is numbered. Good news, the evangelion, the gospel, 
is no religious word. It's primarily political to the core. It's all about who is in charge and how the world works, where all of this is going. The advent of Jesus is about a regime change. This is good news to the poor. It's good news to the brokenhearted. It's good news to the captive, to the oppressed. This new administration has an agenda and that agenda is jubilee. It's a new day. It's forgiveness that is both relational and even financial. Again, this only sounds like good news, depending on where you're standing and how you've arranged your life. Let those who have ears hear. And then it's about Jesus Christ, God's son. And lest we forget, Christ is not Jesus's last name. It's a title. It's a political title. Messiah, son of God. It's one of those phrases that messes with a it's sort of separation of church and state in our minds. You see rulers, even and especially the least religious ones, like to picture themselves in like these sort of grandiose divine ways. And I say this to you as someone who has a master of divinity that's so fancy, right? When power and control is your main image of God, and it is for so many of us past and present, having power and being in control means you've tapped into something divine or it means that you are like a God, right? Man, su supremacy like this is a heck of a drug. Ancient pharaohs and Caesars were way more explicit about this. If you uh, in some of the biblical archaeology, you see these coins with Caesar's uh, head on them that say inscriptions along the lines of son of God. You know, um, they, they were explicit in ways that uh, these days were far more subtle or implicit. So the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Christ, the son of God, tells a drastically different story, one in which is not printed on a coin. In, in fact, when Jesus encounters um, uh, is the Pharisees and is being trapped with uh, a coin about taxes and, and Jesus takes the coin and he looks at it and says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Uh, uh, and it's speculated probably correctly that the coin he had probably had Caesar's face on it. So he says, give this back to God, to Caesar and give to God what is God, namely the very image of God and each and every one of us that belongs to God, the creator and savior of the world. The beginning of this good news of Jesus, the Christ son of God tells a drastically different story. And this story is the story, the true story of power and of control, what it looks like for the rightful Lord of Lords to be born and what it looks like for God to actually dwell among us what it looks like for a king to die and what it looks like for that same king to be victorious beyond death. When all of this happens, it holds in check our best ideas of what it looks like to lead and what it might look like to be a citizen of this sort of king's kingdom. This master story shows up in passages like Philippians 2, when it says that Jesus, though he was in the very 
form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or grasped, but rather he emptied himself and came to us in the form of a slave, a servant, one who looks just like us. And it's that same empty slave servant that then gets exalted that every knee in, uh, on heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is that master story. You can see this little sentence is compact and explosive. It's, it's dynamite, it's gunpowder. And then the phrase that all of this is just as it was written by the prophet Isaiah. For all of this innovation and all of this newness, all of these new things that are coming into the world with Jesus's advent, this statement links what God is doing in Christ to what God has been doing for a long time. The prophets, these ones who were killed by their own people for having like the least popular take <laughs> because they were able to see and call out the ways that God's people in the surrounding nations weren't living up to their vocation. These prophets have been in on the game the whole time. Most of them didn't live long enough or couldn't live long enough to, to be vindicated in these prophetic visions. It's important for us to remember that in this time of such rapid change and so much information, that this sort of looking back, this kind of like resourcement of the insight and the wisdom of the prophets of our past is sort of linking into the way that God has been working for so long, even if it is slow, even if it is confusing, is the way forward. This is part and parcel of what it means to follow a patient and faithful God and to become patient and faithful people in God's image. Jesus shows us this way best. And my friend David uh, recently posted this, that Jesus is born in a relatively inconspicuous manner after 400 years of silence in the prophetic department. He then goes silent for another 30 years of inconspicuous activity. And after his public baptism, he goes into the desert for 40 silent days. Jesus seriously takes his time. This is the three mile an hour kingdom coming to us at a crawl. So then Mark begins to quote Isaiah with a sprinkling of Malachi. And Malachi was that last prophet in that 400 years of silence in expectation. And if you think your Advent waiting is long and tedious as we, as we desire for Christmas to come, think about an Advent that takes 400 years. <laughs> so Mark reports, look, I'm sending my messenger before you. He will prepare your way. He's a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And then he goes on to name John the Baptist, Jesus's cousin who leapt in Elizabeth's womb at the pregnant Mary's presence as that messenger. We'll focus here for the rest of our time today. I'm struck by the, by the figure that this John the Baptist cuts, right? There's a sense in which he is like a wild-eyed pit preacher talking repentance and dressed like nobody around him. 
his message, like last week's, is change is going to come. It's on the horizon. Don't run from it. Join in on it, even if you can't see it. Pay attention to the road you're on. Make it straight and see the signs. You may even have to turn around so that you can walk towards God who is walking towards you. Maybe that's what you need to hear today. Uh, maybe in this pandemic time where it doesn't feel like we're going very far ever, uh, there's still a nagging sense that you are you're inching away or walking away from God. And this is a, a call and an Advent invitation to turn around and walk back towards God because God has already started to close that gap walking towards you. That's part of the good news of the coming of Jesus. When I, when I see this uh, passage in Mark about John, when I hear about John the Baptist, all I can think about is a bell curve. Y'all remember this from math class? Teachers, I know you know what this is, right? Um, you know how this distribution works. There's that fat middle in these like skinny tails of above and beyond. The fat middle is like the majority and the skinny tails are those who are either far ahead or lagging behind. I think of the bell curve for John because I think he's like one of those rare people in like the 99.9999 percentile. He is way on the end of the curve. Several standard deviations ahead of where everyone else is and what everyone else can see. And to be honest, when you're not there and you can't see it, those sorts of people can seem like they're from the future or they can seem like they're completely out of time or out of sorts, maybe from the past, maybe from the future. Um, they can seem just like utterly crazy. And I think that's how John shows up in this story. He's kind of both. He's from the past and he's from the future. He's out of time and he's crazy. His get up and his diet must have seen, made him seem like he was an alien. His message must have seemed at once antiquated, but also sort of progressive. Like, was this really happening? None of this should shock us. Those on the front end of the curve, on the front edge of the curve, often look this way. And there are also a lot of wannabes. And there were, in those 400 years, there are a lot of wannabe messiahs and a lot of wannabe messengers for the coming of God, or at the very least, the coming of some sort of messianic revolt or revolution. Nowadays, even there's for every couple thousand claiming to have the next big or idea or struggling to get people on board, there's like one Microsoft or Apple or Amazon who have for better or often for worse have changed our world. And all of these ideas are born out of a garage or storage space from someone wearing the 1980s equivalent of camel hair, right? Talking about a new future that most of us can't see and just kind of want to dismiss because we're just camped out in the middle of the curve. Like the early adopters creating something new in their basement John the Baptist comes pointing a finger towards the future. And, and this finger for John is pointed directly at Jesus. 
in John's gospel in, in the third chapter, uh, there's this amazing quote for John because he's this forerunner pointing at Jesus and his mantra is always, he, Jesus, must become greater. I must become less. That's an, an inspiring thing as we look to John and maybe um, a, a mantra that we can take up this Advent season that Jesus might become greater even as we become less. Not that we're going to vanish or disappear or um, be erased, but that Jesus might loom large as we wait in joyful hope for his coming. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that Steve Jobs is a messianic figure or even a John the Baptist figure. Just that forerunners have common characteristics. They look and they sound a certain way and they face many obstacles on the road in which they're literally paving as they walk forward on it. That's like, to mix metaphors, it's like um, building the plane as you're in flight, right? Like, um, that's what forerunners do. And they gather early adopters who can kind of see in part, and Paul's language on this is like see through a glass darkly. And they gather people who are willing to take a risk. For, for John, these sorts of early adopters, these investors, were those gathered at the Jordan River, willing to take a plunge, willing to take a risk to leave their sin and their lives behind as they knew them in order to take up a new way that hadn't yet begun. And friends, as we're further in the middle of the curve here, the invitation is still the same, to take that risk, to take that plunge, to find life in Christ, to, to leave our sins and to be washed and to be included in Christ's death and to be raised in Christ's resurrection and to find our lives hidden in Christ. It, it, it's no less risky now than it was then, but, uh, but that future has begun in Christ. It's not something that they couldn't see. We've, we've already seen it. We see it when we look around, we see it in each other. We see the Holy Spirit um, continuing this kingdom growth as we wait for Jesus to come again. And then in that, that baptism story, Jesus meets John on that bank, that river bank. And Jesus takes the plunge, even though John's kind of resistant. He, do, he, he doesn't think that Jesus should be the one being baptized. And I think what, and what uh, happens next is kind of the most beautiful and complex sign of Jesus's intimacy with us sinners, with us humans, that Jesus, the word made flesh, also has ears to hear. That Jesus is the one coming, but he also has the, the kind of ears to hear from people like John who are, who are paving the way, who are making straight paths and, and calling others to do the same. I wonder who the Johns, the Baptist, or maybe even the Jans, the Baptist these days might be that are begging us to have ears and eyes to hear and see. I wonder who those people are.
I know they're still here. I know God still works this way. God is still calling. God is still inviting us to wake up and open our ears and eyes. I wonder who these people are who require us to lean in a little closer. A hint, they're probably not professional politicians and they're probably not on Twitter. Like these, these people are, are subtle and maybe even strange and they come to us uh, in surprising ways. I wonder what roads are winding and which roads are twisted and which roads are potholed or hilly in our hearts, in, in our land that need to be road graded for the coming of Christ, that need to remove resistance for Christ's coming. After all, having being someone who's grown up in Florida, when I first moved to North Carolina, uh, I. I thought I was gonna get shin splints because of how hilly it is around here. And so like, I know the benefit of flat ground to walk on and how much easier it is and can be. Uh, it's uh, around the church, it's, it's, no, it's no clever name that, that the, uh, the name of things are like Forest Hills and, and Moorhead Hill and all of these things, right? But I wonder in our hearts and in our minds and in our relationships, which of these winding, twisted, potholed, hilly roads need to be leveled, which mountains need to be brought low and which valleys need to be raised up so that Jesus has an unimpeded path to us. Not because Jesus can't come to us through the off-road. That's the ironic part of both John's appearance and the way that God chose to come into the world in this first advent, that God is not thwarted by bumps in the road or detours or messy, cruel or unruly humanity. It is actually in, through, for, and with us that God comes, no matter what the terrain, not through straight paths only, but welcoming hospitable, peacemaking hearts beat a path. Do everything possible uh, in our power to beat a path, to remove obstructions, to take away everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us, to like to use Old Testament language, to dig out our ears so that we have ears to hear to clip back the uh, shrubs that kind of encroach so we can't see around the corner and we have all these blind spots that we, we cut those back so that we can see better, so that we can expect, so that we can yield and that we can join in Christ's coming again and again at the speed of humanity at foot speed, which doesn't leave us in the dust, but bids us to join to come to walk with Jesus. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for this sometimes painfully slow kingdom. We, we so often wanna to, want to walk and want to rest, but we want you to run and make haste. Um, Lord, give us urgency and give us patience and help us stick closely to your side. Thanks for um, what we're able to see when we walk, how we're able to feel resistance, 
how we're able to see beauty, how we're able to interrogate suffering, how we're able to uh, hear voices and the subtleties of our places when we go slow um, in that walking created us um, hopeful, peaceful, attentive hearts and uh, creating us uh, a longing for you uh, to come again. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.